Hello and welcome back to Hey. You hold on. Don't worry about it. My God. I told you I'd take you there later on. Anyways, welcome to Hey All. They just Does sell Swedish furniture. Idea? You have to build it yourself. Man. Uh, welcome to Hey All You Zombies. My name is Chris Abel. And uh, my cohort over there through the Magic Mirror is noted film critic Richard Krauss. And uh, you have a guest. You have a guest with you today. Yes. Well, we're going to be talking about uh, a big story that's happened here in Toronto, uh, commonly known as the IKEA monkey. This is where a small monkey wandered into uh, an IKEA store, and it's caused quite a kerfuffle. And so I thought I'd bring my own monkey. Now, the IKEA monkey's name was Darwin. So this is my Darwin. Oh. Although, you know, close friends call him Charles. Uh, yes, that's right. And uh, unlike, you know, some irresponsible people that actually purchase monkeys to be pets, uh, I've done the, the right thing, and, and mine's an animatronic monkey. So I've got uh, the ability to kind of move him up and do all sorts of cool stuff. And, of course, I can <laughs> make him a happy monkey, but with a little switch. I can also make him kind of like the rise of the, the planet of the monkey style. Man, oh man. Really, really get upset. Uh, he's got um, a special mode called Alive, which means that he's got sensors in his nostrils as well as elsewhere on his body. And the idea is that if you are this uh, strange eccentric like I am, you put him in your, your library, and if people walk in, he actually senses your presence and will react to it. He will also react if you come up and touch him on the face and such. Where, where did you find such a thing? Uh, this was um, sold about four or five years ago by a company called Wowee, which made uh, consumer robotics uh, right. for the crowd. And they initially sold this as they thought it would be a great uh, executive toy uh -huh. for corporations because then you could have meetings and executives could put forth uh, suggestions and then... <laughs> I see. Yeah. I see. Well, the IKEA monkey. As much as I have dreamed of of just being somewhere, being at the post office, being at Starbucks, and meeting a little simian friend, just that I would hang out with for a little while. Uh, when I first saw the IKEA monkey, I was really excited. But then I thought, oh, the poor thing. I mean, then you realize, you know, that what a horrible story it actually is. But uh, uh, the first pictures, I have to say, uh, I was entranced by them. Well, they are so cute here. I've got a couple of them uh, at the ready, and these are the ones that have been spreading around the Internet. Right. So let me see if I pull it up here. Uh, yeah, I think most people <laughs> – here he is. And he does look so cute, uh, especially because he's wearing a little tiny winter coat. Yeah. And uh, what had happened here was that he had um, he had been left in a car. His owner had said, I'll be right back. Just stay put. Uh, and he, I guess, didn't want to stay put. He managed to unlock his little crate and unlock the car door and went out for a little wander. And uh, you can imagine the, the doors at the Ikea going, shh, opening, and then shh, this little guy. <laughs> <laughs> and wandering around. And what, a, what a, an incredible sight that must have been. I would have loved to have seen it. I uh, I have a photo I'd like to share as well. This is, uh, uh, you know, IKEA, you know, is uh, cashing in on this, and this is uh, this is what it is, monkey, and it's <laughs> it's not real. I wish it was, but uh, this is uh, how to uh, you know have your own monkey at IKEA and put a little jacket on it. And then I liked this as well. I found this photo as well. Um, in Put this on my Facebook. That's our mayor, Rob Ford, uh, dressed as the IKEA monkey, <laughs> and I kind of love that picture. Yeah, <laughs> it, it matches oh so well. I'm not even really making a political statement there. I could, but I'm not going to. That is just simply an excellent photograph. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's been a fantastic story to kind of follow, but you're you're absolutely right. It's a very sad one. And I yeah. kind of wanted to touch upon that uh, a little bit today. Uh, it, it was odd because one of the things that's unusual when it comes to wild animals is that we as a society seem to have less knowledge about it than any other topic. I mean, when you see a news story hit the web and people start to comment, you get lots of stupid comments. But it just seemed 
that so many people, including those who have been reporting on it, just are so out of touch in terms of what issues are kind of involved with this. And it's just, it disappoints me that, that it's just that hard to define anyone in society can kind of understand what's going on here with this little guy and this little monkey. Uh, he's a rhesus capac, uh, which is a, uh, in terms of the monkeys out there, you may know of them as uh, in India. They have these temples. It's a big tourist attraction. And those are the monkeys that are given free reign, and they scamper all over the place, and they cause lots of mischief and havoc. And they're they're great for for tourists to come check out. And they're they're mainly from Asia, right. but uh, you know, in terms of of something that is sold on the marketplace as being a pet, it's an odd kind of situation because there are places in Canada, there are places in the United States where there are people who the laws are kind of iffy that they can get away with selling these kinds of animals right. as pets, but they're, they're, they're not really appropriate pets, are they? Well, they, they grow to be like four feet tall or something, don't they? They do. And, and long lifespan. So unlike say getting a cat or getting a dog where even if you're a responsible pet owner or companion, uh, you could be looking at about 10 or 12, 13 years. Monkeys, especially primates, they can live to be like 60, 80 years old. Some of them often, uh, people who get these animals as pets, the, the animals outlive their, their owners. So it's, it's, it's quite a, uh, most people who get involved in this, they have no idea what kind of a, a problem that they're taking on. Right. Well, uh, the, the woman that, that had the, the uh, Darwin, the Ikea monkey, uh, desperately wants him back. And it looks like now she's going to sue, but I, apparently she doesn't really have much chance of ever getting him back. And, you know, I, I feel for her, I guess, because it does seem like she's bonded with, with this monkey, except that he's only about five or six months old now. And I don't think has, she has any idea of what will happen, you know, in two years from now. No. And there's a big difference between... <laughs> <laughs> he was nodding his head. He was nodding his head at the back. Nodding his head in complete agreement. He yeah. understands. Uh, there's a, a big difference between, say, a cat or a dog, uh, an animal that through our own uh, breeding or evolution is domesticated. There right. are species that is adapted to the idea of living with humans and say something like uh, a primate, which has not, doesn't have any of those adaptations. And so there are inherent problems that people don't realize. Uh, one of them is that um, monkeys require a lot of sunlight. They come from warm climates where their skins have, they're so dark is to protect them against the sun's radiation. When you bring them to a northern climate like Canada, where we don't get as much sunlight as say a place like India, they have to spend as much time outdoors as possible. And so when you have people that buy them as pets and they do things like this woman did, which was to put a coat, little coat jacket on him and kind of treat him like he's a member of the family, he ends up staying indoors far more than he really should. And this can lead to problems like bone diseases and all sorts of health issues that people who you know, capture these animals don't really take into consideration when they purchase them. And then you, know, you have the other issue, which is that uh, these monkeys eventually get older. And while they're easy to play with when they're young, when <laughs> exactly. While they're easy to play with when they're young, when they get to be teenagers, they can be very, you know, assertive uh, adults. And often even in professional sanctuaries, these, these monkeys end up being left behind bars because nobody can really go near them. And right. so it becomes a big issue. And you have a lot of these monkeys that sort of become abandoned. I mean, you think of the Toronto Humane Society, which is full of cages of, of dogs and cats that have been abandoned because they're not cute anymore. You know, th those are dogs and cats that people yeah. couldn't tolerate. Imagine what it would be like to have one of these guys suddenly reach a point where you, you can't live with them anymore. It's just shocking, you know? Yeah, it's, it's a shame. It's a shame. But, uh, you know, for as much amusement as this story gave me at the beginning, I, I now feel a little dirty that I was so excited that there was a monkey loose in Ikea when I first saw it on the news. Because, again, you know, you have no story. And, I, of course, you have pictures in your mind if it's sitting in the little chairs in the kids' section, maybe <laughs> having a nap on a bed, you know? <laughs> Oh, monkeys are awesome. They're, they're very, monkeys very cute. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's no problem with sort of having an appreciation for monkeys and for wanting to support things like the sanctuary, which is where uh, little Darwin has gone to. And one of the things that's interesting is they say they, as soon as he got there, they took off his coat and his diaper and they said yeah. now he gets a chance to actually be a monkey. Like yeah, a monkey, be a monkey. Yeah. You know, rather and, than being someone's um, little bonsai pet, a miniature version of themselves. Right, and it's going to take a while for him to adapt, though. I would, I would assume. 
Well, this is one of the problems. So you get to the point where someone no longer wants their monkey anymore. It's not cute. It's not adorable. It's, it's flinging its feces. It's destroying the house. It's, you know, uh, getting to the point where it's stronger than you are. And it's it like realizes that. a rock star. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's suddenly, you know, you're, it's, it's like some parents go through this phase where they reach a point where their sons or daughters realize that they're now big enough and strong enough. You can't push them around anymore. Well, you can imagine what it's like with, you know, say a chimpanzee or, you know, um, a rhesus monkey. And so the issue is that when they do donate them to like a sanctuary, they've taught these animals to smile, you know, and in the world of monkeys, you don't smile. Um, right. It's it's a, a sign of aggression. And well, bear, you're baring your teeth as though you're going to bite. Correct. Right? Yeah. yeah. And so this becomes it's almost like you you know if you were sent to a prison, the last thing you want to do is walk around going, "Hi guys," you know, you're going to get your ass kicked. And so uh, this becomes the issue for guys like Darwin, who have been taught to kind of think like a, a human being and smile like a human being. It becomes a real problem in terms of trying to adjust, and so it's nasty. But I did a quick search. Uh, to try to, to, to find out more information. I'm not a primatologist. I don't know much about monkeys. And I was amazed how when I typed in uh, rhesus macaque monkey, macaque monkey, Google auto-suggested for sale. Really? Really. Wow. And then I hit the, the, the search button, and I immediately got a long list of websites of places in southern Florida because they have very loose laws over there of people who describe themselves as being breeders and they had shopping lists of all the the animals that you could purchase and i'm talking about tigers and and, and you know lions and and southern cell tail porcupines uh but also capuchin monkeys all sorts of crazy thing and the telling thing about those shopping lists when i looked at them was they only had listings for young animals for infants, the moment that these creatures become adults, they no longer hold a market value. Right, but who would want a porcupine? Who would want well, a porcupine? As, as there are some really strange uh, eccentrics. There was a, a case, I think, just last year of a man who uh, he was a bit of an adrenaline junkie. He, you know, um, spent a lot of money on fighter jets and and jumping out of airplanes and all that kind of stuff. And he ended up spending a lot of money creating a compound in his home where he would keep numerous tigers, numerous, uh, he had one monkey, he had uh, lions and panthers, all sorts of things. And not for any other purpose other than this is just how he wanted to live. Right. I can uh, see maybe having uh, porcupines as guard dogs. They'd be, I think they'd be great guard animals for your house. <laughs> You know? <laughs> Certainly, if you're trying to, you know, break through a door and you see that standing in your way, yeah. and it might give you some pause. Yeah, who's going to mess with a porcupine? Get a porcupine and a couple of skunks, and no one will try and break into your house. Yeah. The, the concern about this story, now that there's this cute little image of the, um, the monkey going around, right. is that people are going to do those Google searches like I did, right. and that you are going to actually increase the demand of, of, affluent twits that are going to go off and try to buy these animals, you know, uh, and it's very, very sad. And it's hard because there, there is such a, um, such little law that's out there and regulation about it. So here in, in Canada, it's not even left up to each individual province, but say in Quebec where she purchased this monkey, it's left up to each individual borough to right. make their own bylaws and prohibitions. And in fact, the woman who's trying to sue to get uh, ownership of this monkey, she says as soon as she gets ownership, she will move to a place where it is considered right. legal to own the monkey. And it's quite quite sad. But the problem is that you have people who, uh, in areas where it's allowed to have these exotic pets, the, the usual approach is to say, well, you have to be a licensed breeder. Right. These can't be wild animals taken from the wild. It has to be someone who has a, um, a, a population of these animals and can kind of breed them. It's not generally the, the best arrangement because, you know, you're dealing with, say, like monkeys. Monkeys don't grow up in families. They grow up in troops. Right. So you really right. should have a large, healthy enclosure where they can kind of develop their social uh, dynamics and all sorts of things. But the, the problem has been is that people who poach animals will create uh, counterfeit paperwork claiming that the animals were actually bred Right. captive breeding in places like the United States. And so even when you're purchasing a monkey from Quebec, you're dealing with someone who tells you he's a breeder, but he may not actually be a breeder. He may be a front for some 
right. other organizations bringing them into the country. Well, it's, 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 you know, it's interesting because it's a whole kind of, I guess, subculture that you just don't hear that much about, really. Yeah. Involved in it to hear about it, I guess. You know? Well, and it's not something we think of as being here. You know, yeah. when we hear about stories of poaching, we, we hear about stories of people keeping exotic pets, uh, we tend to associate it with something that's sort of maybe from Asia or Europe. We right. don't think that in downtown Toronto, you're going to end up having a monkey walking around on the street, but there it is. Uh, and it's, it's horrible stories. Um, there've been a lot of people I saw who said, you know, what they should do with young Darwin is send him back to the wild to his mother. I don't think people realize. I don't think that people realize that, uh, when animals are captured from the wild, uh, often they only go for the young animals. Often the mothers and the fathers are killed. You know, there are more animals usually killed in the process of capturing these animals. Right. And then they are quickly, it's a, it's a get rich quick scheme. They're quickly turned over to try to pawn off on some rich tourists. They tell you whatever you want to hear. They're not going to tell you the downsides of owning this, these kinds of animals. And they'll, they'll push your heartstrings. In this case, she, she said when she first purchased the monkey, she felt bad. She tried to return it. And the uh, breeder said, oh, no, no, you're its mother now. You have to take care of it. You know, there's that kind it's of creepy slimy parents yeah. yeah that kind of stuff that's going on and, and and don't fool yourself you know when you're you're taking care of an animal like this you're not its parent you're the human being you're the human caretaker it's you know you could at best call yourself companions but it's yeah. people get so uh i mean people do obviously become very emotionally attached to animals and pets and things so so i mean i guess i can i, I can see how it could happen but the video of her brushing her teeth with her monkey is ridiculous yeah. It's ridiculous. Well, you mentioned affluent twits. Speaking of which, the Golden Globe nominations uh, came out uh, today. <laughs> and, uh, I like that segue. And a very accurate one, too, yeah. I believe. Yeah. Um, so Lincoln, Django, Unchained, and Argo. Uh, Lincoln and, and Argo, of course, are in the theaters already. Django comes out on Christmas Day. Uh, they got most of the, of the Golden Globe nominations uh, Lincoln has seven, including Best Director, Best Picture, and Best Actor for Daniel Day-Lewis. Django has five, and um, Argo has uh, five, including Director, Picture, and Supporting Actor for Alan Argo, or for uh, Alan Arkin. Now, these awards are given by the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. And, you know, in the real world, the Hollywood Foreign Press <laughs> Association doesn't really mean all that much. There's about 90 members, and they are... Um, a, a small insular group of of film professionals, and I use that in, in sort of uh, quotes. They uh, to to qualify, uh, you only you have to, to do very little to qualify. You you can't be an American citizen, and you have to uh, you have to have written and get at least one or two pieces published every year about film. And that's not very much. I mean, this week alone, I've had three pieces published uh, this week alone. And then we haven't even hit Friday yet when, you know, three or four reviews are going to come out. And, you know, so, it's, it, it, you know, it, it, the, the bar is not particularly high. And no, once I, I would say it's harder requirements just to go to most, like, expos or conventions. Like absolutely. The CES uh, Expo in Las Vegas, it's harder to prove that you're a journalist to get into than this organization. That's absolutely. And, well, and they don't actually uh, take all that many members, right? There's 90 of them. People stay. There's very old members of this group they stay until you know they they, they can't stay anymore uh, but they they you know years ago uh, teamed up with Dick Clark Productions to produce the Golden Globe Awards and then all of a sudden they became kind of the alternative to the Oscars so Warren Beatty once said that the the Oscars are for business because when you get that Oscar bump when you get nominated all of a sudden more people go oh I want to see the movie and they go out if they haven't already seen it, see it. Uh, but the Golden Globes are for fun you'll notice at the Golden Globe ceremony on television there's a bottle of champagne on every table uh, it's a little looser you know and generally speaking it is a bit more fun but, you know, it doesn't mean nearly as much. Uh, I mean, not that the, the Academy Awards mean a huge amount anymore, I don't think. But the, the Golden Globes don't really mean that much. Now, people do suggest that they are um, an indicator of what's going to win uh, in a lot of the categories. But let's be realistic here. When you are able to nominate 
10 pictures over two categories for best picture. So you have best picture drama, this year it's Argo, Django Unchained, Life of Pi, Lincoln, and Zero Dark Thirty. Uh, you also throw into the mix best picture comedy or musical, which is Exotic Marigold Hotel, Les Miserables, uh, Eyes Kingdom, uh, Silver Linings Playbook, and then one, like every year they do something just like that's so far off the chart that it kind of blows your mind. This year, Salmon Fishing in the Yemen is uh, nominated for Best Comedy or Musical. Now, this was a movie that uh, is Emily Blunt. You know, everybody loves Emily Blunt. Uh, you know, it, it comes with a bit of a pedigree, except Ewan McGregor's in there, except it wasn't very good and it didn't last very long in theaters. And how uh, anyone even remembered enough about it to vote for it is kind of beyond me. But anyway, it got, it got nominated this year. So my point is that out of these 10 uh, nominees, of course there's going to be a winner. Of course, they're going to be able to choose. When you have that much latitude, uh, they're going to nail it. They're going to get. They're they're going to get the uh, thing. Same thing with uh, actor. It was like, oh well, you know, uh, actor. Uh, they always seem to choose. Uh, you know, they at least nominate the actor. Well, again, yeah, of course they do because there's best actor drama, best actor comedy or musical. So of course, you know, it's it, it's not so much a predictor. Maybe if anything, it it it, it helps you narrow down the choices if you're someone that likes to make lists near the end of the year uh but you know this year um they've the, the best picture drama it's there's there's no big surprises there salmon fishing in the yemen that's a bit of a mind blower frankly uh best director you know it's all pretty standard stuff ben affleck for argo catherine bigelow for zero dark 30 Ang Lee, Life of Pi, Steven Spielberg for Lincoln, Quentin Tarantino for Django and Change. There's nothing, there's nothing too shocking uh, about any of this. But uh, I just thought, uh, you know, this is the, 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 the organization that thought burlesque from a number of years ago uh, deserved to be on the, the best picture list. Well, so, and, and Legally Blonde 2, was it? That uh, I mean, you know, they, they, they fought really hard against the reputation of being uh, uh, sort of an easy, uh, of, of handing away nominations a little bit too easily. Um, every year we get sent things. We get sent lots of things. Sure. Uh, and, and around this time of year, I don't think I have any sitting right here. They're all in the other room. Around this time of year, we get four-year consideration screeners. And four-year consideration screeners <clears throat> are just a way of reminding us what movies are out there and that what, you know, we should probably have a, a look at in a, in a way of, of sort of having a look at them again. Lincoln went a little overboard this year in terms of the stuff that they sent around. I got uh, a rolled up parchment of the score from John Williams to remind me maybe that I might want to vote for that uh, in the, the Broadcast Film Critics Association Awards. I got um, a big book on a big coffee table book on Steven Spielberg. I got uh, a thing that I was so excited because I thought someone had sent me a box of chocolates uh, and it wasn't. It was uh, a big box with a screener inside uh, with a, a limited edition print signed uh, for Lincoln. And anyway, so Lincoln sends over all this stuff. And then strangely enough, Lincoln leads the nominees <laughs> with uh, seven nominations uh, from the Hollywood Foreign Press. So they don't do themselves a whole lot of favors. Now, Lincoln is a good movie. Sure. You know, th th it's not like they've, you know, they've given Salmon Fishing in the Yemen seven nominations out of the blue. Lincoln was expected to get some things. Daniel Day-Lewis, I think, is probably a lock not only to win the Golden Globe, but probably also the Oscar for his performance as Lincoln. But it just kind of made me laugh a little bit as I had a look at this list, and I was like, oh, of course it's got more than any other thing, because look at the swag that they sent around. <laughs> well, and I'm sure it's even, even more so than that, because they have a reputation, those 90 people, sort of setting themselves up to be wooed by a Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes it's very possible, my understanding anyways, that actors can actually campaign for a nomination, that they have these parties where they invite the 90, uh, you know, journalists on the list to come over and, and yeah. make sure that they have their actresses in revealing dresses and there's lots of food and booze. And well, you know, I, I've been around this business a little bit, you know, and I've, I've done this for a long time and, and I've been invited to a number of cocktail parties and that kind of thing. And that's just been a sort of part of the, the yeah. business of, of uh, like typically speaking there after a premiere, you know, I went to the, to the Django Unchained party this week. I went to another reception for David Chase who, uh, uh, 
um, uh, directed Not Fade Away and created The Sopranos this week. You know, so they want you to press the flesh a little bit, meet everybody. That's fine. That's not going to influence me too much, as I think David Chase will find out when my review comes out for the movie. But um, I, I will say uh, that I went to years ago. I was in New York, uh, and I was doing interviews for the movie uh, Elf. And we had heard that there was a party for Elf, a Hollywood foreign press party for Elf at the Empire State Building. And I was determined to get into this thing. And I'm not, I'm not a member, officially not invited, but we made a few phone calls and we got invited because I'd heard about these parties and I desperately wanted to see what they were all about. And sure enough, you know, not only is John Favreau there pressing the flesh and drinking scotch on the 80th floor of the Empire State Building with everybody, but Ed Asner was there. That was pretty cool. Bob Newhart was there. James Conn was there. Will Ferrell was there. The entire cast came out to meet everyone, to say hi, to be seen by these people because, you know, the movie was coming out at a time of year when a Golden Globe nomination or two wouldn't have hurt box office and, you know, all that stuff. So it's just funny to me, you know, that that – all these things seem to happen. The Lincoln swag comes rolling in, and all of a sudden it's got a, a whole lot of nominations. As I say, it's a pretty good movie, and uh, some of these nominations absolutely were, were earned. But they're just it, it, there's always that, with the Hollywood Foreign Press, there's always that kind of like, really, how sincere is this? That's crazy. Yeah. That's, my, that's, my, that's my rant about them. Well, and it doesn't help that we really build it up. I mean, when the nominations come, it becomes a huge uh, media story. A lot of time is going to be devoted to this. Um, I mean, it's good. That, you know. I mean, today, uh, you know, I've been talking about it a, a little bit in other places. Tomorrow I'm doing a bunch of these, like, you know, talking about the nominations, who's going to win, what's it. You know, and it's, and it's true. I mean, it's, it's, it's part of the thing. The Golden Globes, I mean, the People's Choice Awards, we don't get out and talk about it so much, but these, you know, the, these, uh, these and the Oscars, we tend to. Yeah. And that's what I, I kind of find surprising. There are other award shows. It's odd that this is the one that has sort of been built up over the years that has so much importance and influence. I don't know. Well, it, it's glamorous. The stars actually go. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, 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 uh, it's a, it's, 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 it, it can be a big event. <laughs> well, okay. So I wanted to talk about something that might be, considered the antithesis to that. Um, recently, an unusual record was set within the world of television. Right. Um, I think Regis Philbin is still the man who's logged the most hours on television. He's right, the most hours on live television or something. Right. Yeah, yeah, something yeah. along those lines. But um, over in the United Kingdom, there's a fellow who has uh, hit the record for being the longest running television host on a show. Oh, that's cool which is pretty amazing. And there's two rather, and the only reason that uh, I'm talking about now is he just passed on. So the, the, his record would still continue if he were alive today. But uh, the two unusual things about this is that the program is called The Sky at Night, and it's about astronomy, which I'm trying to figure, because I mean, I can't think of a astronomy show, period in say the United States or Canada or any other place in the world, let alone one that would be successful to last for a very long time. Uh, and this one lasted for more, uh, it's still going on, but he hosted it for more than 50 years, which is really, wow. really astonishing. And it was uh, in the early days when they did it in the early 1950s, it was live television, which is just insane for astronomy because they would have to wait until it was very late at night. Right. And this being London, England, more often than not, the the the, the sky is, uh, is has it's cloud cover. It's overcast because it's always raining in England, and so wow. you often have you would tune in, and they would be you know pointing the telescope and say, "Well, we want to show you tonight, uh, you know, Venus, but we can't because the clouds are blocking the way." <laughs> and so they would just chat. Well, that's when, yeah, that's when you learn how to be a good television host because you just learn how to fill time. Mm -hmm. We'd like to show you this thing, but we're unable to. So let me describe it for you. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, and they would hype it up because they would have a live camera sitting at the observatory. There'd be this massive telescope, and they would get all excited. And they would have diagrams, and the moment would come. And, of course, as you know, uh, for the first hour while they were, you know, waiting to broadcast, the sky was clear. And it wasn't until actually, you know, you went on to live air that suddenly the clouds started to, to cover up. 
I did a show for years called Real to Real, a movie review show that was shot in bars and restaurants and whatever. Like, and, and, you know, we had ongoing relationships. We shot at one place called Sassafras for three or four or five years or something. Uh, we, we shot, but we always shot uh, on location somewhere. And sure enough, it would be, you know, silent while all the cameras were being set up, everything. And then as soon as they're like, action, you know, all this starts to happen in the background. And it's like, how does this, how do people know? How do people know? And yeah. it happened the other day. I was shooting at the at the uh, CN Tower, and we had an amazing time up there. It was so much fun up there. Uh, it was it was great to be there. But as soon as they're like, and five, four, three, boom, you're on. And then you know, boom, in the background, it's like, you know, it's it's it, just it's it's Murphy's Law. It is Murphy's Law. Well, the fellow who. Um who set this up and I'm going to grab a photo of it. And this is the other strange thing about this record. His name is uh, Patrick Moore, actually Sir Patrick Moore. He's since been knighted, but here I'm going to show you what it looks like on his program. And he is one of the daffiest people who has ever been on television, just in terms of appearance and his mannerisms. Uh, I love him. Oh yeah. Uh, he, he would wear um, suits that were way out of style, very old fashioned. Yeah. Uh, as you can see, his hair was often like just a mess of cowlicks that would go all over the place. He really did not care uh, at all in terms of how he looked, but also um, he wore a monocle, uh, which is something that he's worn since he was 16 years old. He has, he has stronger sight in one eye than the other. And so often when you'd see him on television, he would have this really weird appearance because even if he, he wasn't wearing the monocle, he, his eye would reflexively yeah. squint. Yeah. And he'd be talking like this to the camera all the time. And when he spoke, he spoke really fast and very animated, and just like this, and da 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 And so initially, when he first went on the air, uh, people would be flipping the channels late at night, and they would stop just to watch this guy because he was just so wacky in terms wow. of his performance. Uh, I guess the equivalent would be like Bob Ross, the painter on, on public podcast here in Toronto. <laughs> you know? Well, I love that that picture because his tie was sort of like this. I don't know whether it was two, like if it was a, a tie that actually was split in half, or no. whether it was the front and back now. But it was it was pretty excellent. I, I you know you got to kind of love. I, I love the kind of old schoolness of it. The kind of like I have information that I'm going to share with you. The rest of it doesn't matter. All the you know, all the <laughs> fifty years, man. That's unbelievable. Yeah, unbelievable. 50 years. Uh, here's a, a great photo of him that gives you a, a real sense of what he's like. Ah. That's <laughs> him with his, uh, his mom. Like Winston Churchill a little bit there. Almost. And sort of a man of that era. Yeah. But the amazing thing about him was that um, if you stayed in to watch, that unlike so many other people on television who were kind of uh, opinion-serving characters who, who tried to be stereotypes, uh, Patrick Moore actually knew his subject matter very, very well. Right. Spoke so that everything that he said, you know, you could bank on. It was, it was right. just real. It was valuable information. He was a, a very strong educator, and I didn't know much about him to be honest. I, I sort of discovered him recently because science exploration has kind of taken off. It's been a, this tremendous subject. Uh, and that's, you know, I hesitated. I heard that the British had programs about astronomy. And even I was thinking, how exciting can that possibly yeah. <laughs> be? I mean, I love space. I love planets. But I mean, it's not something that we can go to. You can't send somebody with a camera to these places. You can show illustrations and drawings. And half the time, it's something that is really hard to wrap your head around. How exciting in terms of television can that possibly be? But Thankfully, I've, I've discovered a couple of their programs, including the Sky at Night as well as Stargazing Live, and and the way that they have done it, being very you know innovative broadcasters over there, it is really exciting and very compelling stuff. I sit down and watch it, and I can't believe that I'm just enraptured and, and pulled right in. Uh, but he was very successful in terms of inspiring an entire generation of people to get involved in astronomy. And so this leads to another interesting point, because one of the people who got involved in astronomy because he used to sit as a little boy and watch Patrick Moore on television, and let me pull him up here, is this man, who's now known as Dr. Brian May, the guitarist uh, from Queen. That's awesome. Yeah, he, is, uh, he now has his, his uh, PhD. And, you know, Brian May was is such an interesting guy. He made the guitar that... You know, had that very unique sound that made those Queen records so uh, kind of different sounding and interesting. He made that from the headboard of a bed. 
Wow. He couldn't afford a, he couldn't afford to buy the guitar he wanted, and he uh, he actually made his own. Well, the, after he had, um, I guess, received his doctorate in astrophysics, uh, hard to believe and wrap your head around that, um, but he ended up befriending Patrick Moore. Yeah, Brian May became obviously someone to have on the sky at night. Yeah. The two spent a lot of time and they were considered very dear friends. In fact, as Patrick Moore uh, passed away recently with his cat Ptolemy sitting <laughs> on his, his chest, Brian May was nearby to kind of tweet and let people know, hey, what's happening to uh, Patrick Moore. But uh, it's, it's just it, it was a fantastic sort of friendship that the two of them had. And again, there was a huge number of people in England who all took a, a big interest in astronomy. And it's odd because it's not something that I can point to here right. in Canada or the United States. So it's, it's quite uh, an impressive achievement, even if it's something I don't inherently understand immediately. I don't fully get but it's like i can't conceive of having a show on astronomy let alone a live show on astronomy let alone getting to the point where you inspire people like brian may of all people to get together and brian may i guess partly he liked the eccentricity of patrick Moore. when i say he was an odd guy uh patrick moore was a musician as well but he played the xylophone that's awesome <laughs> right and so can you imagine brian may with his electric guitar and Patrick Moore with his monocle and his xylophone, and the two of them getting together for jam sessions. It's just, it's, it's awesome. Uh, you know, I mean, I've spent the, you know, I spent two years writing this book about Ken Russell and, 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 you know, interviewing what essentially added up to be, you know, a, a, a series, a long series of very eccentric British people. And I love them. I love, no one does eccentricity as genuinely and, and, and sort of as articulately and beautifully as Brits, they seem to they understand it in a way that nobody else does, and I love it. I love the eclecticism of uh, of the idea that you are the world's longest running television host who also plays the xylophone and is a scientist and is a friend of mine. That's awesome. Well, like uh, uh, Mr. Moore, who spent his days looking at the stars, I spend my days. See, here's another segue. I spend my days looking at stars as well, but mine are on a screen. See what I'm doing? See what I'm doing? Another brilliant, brilliant segue. So you, you also are in the dark? Looking I'm in the dark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. And I wanted to talk about The Hobbit a little bit. Now, The Hobbit, we're, we're, we're recording this on Thursday. The Hobbit opens tomorrow. And uh, it's three hours. And I think The Hobbit book is in your hands right now. And I'm sure you've read it. You'll notice a slender volume. It's a slender volume, 300 pages or so. Uh, the uh, movie, the first of three movies, is three hours long. So uh, someone, uh, Robbie Collin, writing in The Telegraph. Yeah, this, wrote, this is what the first three movies would have been. That's right. And this is and the next three are. That's right. There's and, a big difference between those stories. Yes. Well, um, let me see here. Uh, Robbie Collins, writing for The Telegraph, uh, wrote, um, the film lasts for 11 minutes short of three hours and takes us to the end of chapter six in Tolkien's original novel, which falls on page 130 of the official movie tie-in edition. That's half an hour per chapter or one minute and 20 seconds per page. Uh, the work of the somber Hungarian auteur Belatar, whose grinding tale of apocalyptic poverty, The Turin Horse, ran a mere 155 minutes, feels nippy by comparison. So you have uh, a very long movie um, about a, a relatively short book. And um, I think, though, personally having seen it, I think that uh, fans of Lord of the Rings will love it. I think that people who were entranced by the world of the first three movies will want to revisit Middle Earth and all that stuff. And Frodo's in there. Shouldn't be, but he is. He's in there. There's a little prologue. Uh, the old Bilbo Baggins played by Ian Holm is in there again. You shouldn't be, but he is. There's a, there's a prologue. Um, but you get to see all the characters you want to see, and there's cool stuff. But the difference, the thing that everyone's going to be talking about here is that it is not projected in 24 frames. Well, it was shot in 48 frames per second. And you'll have, an, you'll have the chance to see it either in 24 frames a second, which is the norm. That's how movies are typically projected. Or in 48 frames per second, which is uh, this new kind of super high-def, crazy, insane, loco, high definition. It's crazy. It makes 
everything crystal clear, deep focus. And uh, I see why a filmmaker would be fascinated by this process because you know you can pack a lot of information into these in, into every frame. Uh, except that it doesn't look like a movie anymore. It looks like something else. Right. So you're watching this extraordinarily high definition picture in 3D with your, your Hobbit 3D glasses. And as you do so, you, there, there was so much detail and definition that for me, it took me out of the story. For me, it made me notice every camera move. A lot of the camera moves are a little clunky now because uh, you don't have the blur, you don't have the grain, you don't have some of the forgiving aspects of film to help cover them up. And uh, I just thought that it didn't entirely work. Now, I have been accused, and let me pull it up on my Facebook page, because uh, I have spoken about this, not extensively, but I, I mentioned it on the radio today. And if I can, there we go, on my Facebook page today. Uh, it's going to take me a second. Um, there we go. Uh, this was written. All this harping about how 48 frames per second is going to ruin The Hobbit sounds like a lot like a bunch of old people telling those damn dirty kids to get off their lawn and ruining their pastime. And then that there was a whole lot of responses to this. Some for, some against, some, you know. My response was, well, I'll wait till you've all seen the movie, and then we can have this discussion. But for me, it really seems uh, like something else. And I think because of the, of the nature of the story, it's a fantasy. I think because of the nature of the story, the warm kind of dreamlike feel that film has would have been much more appropriate than this really crazy high def. Right. And, well, I mean... Okay, I'm a big proponent for new technology, and uh, especially in the world of, of culture and entertainment. I, even I'm at the point where I don't feel comfortable sort of discussing this until I've had a chance to see yeah. uh, the technology that's being talked about. But my initial feeling when it was first announced, and I think there was even a screening where he did it at 60 frames per second, yeah. if I remember correctly, is that I, I would think that they would want it to have a consistent look between the entire franchise. Right. But this is sort of the wrong movie to start ex exploring this kind of technology. It'd be different if, you know, uh, this was being done in Avatar, for example. Right. We have no reference in terms of how Avatar should look like. So it'd be, you know, right. a good way of kind of experimenting with that kind of technology. But the other aspect is that you can have this kind of, 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 of frame rate, and we've certainly seen the benefits of, of faster frame rates in terms of video games and computer graphics and things like that. But you have to figure out what it's going to be best used for. Mm -hmm. uh, there are modes that you can have on your television that will increase the sort of the, the number of frames artificially. And those are meant to be for sports. But occasionally you see somebody who doesn't know what they're doing and they put on an old black and white movie. And it, it takes on this odd uh, sort of quality where it looks like closed caption security camera footage. It does not look like something that's, that's kind of theatrical. Well, see, well for me, uh, I thought that bits of The Hobbit kind of looked like Coronation Street from 1985, you know, that sort of like law, that, that, that with, with deep focus. It, it looked like videotape a lot of it to me. And, uh, you know, as Terry Hart, who was on uh, Entertainment Extra with me today, said, <laughs> she said, I could see the strings. I could see the strings. And what she meant by that was there's, you know, obviously there's a lot of special effects uh, in this movie. And she said she felt that making it hyper real like this mm. took away some of the mystery and the magic. And, and you know, she could see the strings. She could see how it was done. Right. And I'm, I, most people don't, I guess, appreciate or realize that when you're on a film set, everything all the props are of a very poor quality. They don't look anything like they do when they're up on the screen. Someone can sit there, you know, holding a pistol in their hand. And, and when you saw the movie, you could swear that it had the little grooves and all the, the, the markings on it. But when you see the actual thing, it's a big, almost like a jelly baby, a big rubber wanky thing that somebody's sort of holding around. A lot of the sets and the props don't have much detail to them. It's, it's yeah. shocking when you get a chance to actually look at it. Unlike, say, in theater, um, I had a chance to perform on the Nutcracker with the Canadian Opera Ballet uh, Company, the Canadian Ballet Company. And... I was shocked at the level of detail that they have in terms of their props. Everything there looks real. When you've got fake food, you almost want to reach out and just eat it. It's just 
amazing. And so I could, I could appreciate how a filmmaker might get frustrated with that difference if they've ever gone to the theater and seen the kind of costumes that are being made in the immaculate detail, the artisans that work on it are just amazing, and then go and work on film where everybody is compensating for the fact that the, the camera lens is going to play with colors and shadings and blurs, and you, know, you don't get to make nice things quite the same way. Right. Well, it's funny because I'm just looking for a photo here. Um, recently, uh, for Canada AM, I dressed. And we, we, I, I think we showed photographs of it. I'm just seeing if I have one that I can grab quickly here. Uh, I don't see it. But I wore, uh, I wore a, a very elaborate uh, costume. It made me kind of look like a space wizard. Here we go. Yeah. Pictures of it right here. Um, and the interesting thing about this, I thought, was that this costume weighed 400 pounds. And <laughs> I asked the guy that we were renting it from, I went to Malibu and I asked the guy, and he's, he explained just that. Here's the screen share of it. This is me uh, in the green room at Canada AM uh, dressed as a wizard. Now, this costume, uh, there's, a, there's like a, a, an undergarment that I'm wearing, this, this gown, and then this hat. And uh, it weighed a ton. I mean, it, it, the embroidery was very, very uh, nicely done. It was, it was weighty and it hot and slightly, frankly, uncomfortable to wear. And uh, I asked the guy about it, and he said, oh, well, it's because this was made for an opera company. And he said, it's not like film where you can cheat it. And they, you know, like you said, the costumes don't fit, so you just tape them up in the back or you pin them up in the back. He said, these things are built to look great close up. And uh, that's the big difference. And they, uh, this was one of those, an example of that. But man, they, they're uncomfortable and not all that much fun to wear. There's a, a great article I'll put up on our website, a link to, uh, written by Norm Chan over at Tested.com, where he details the efforts of fans to try to reproduce Han Solo's blaster from oh, the original right. Star Wars movie. Right. And the difficulty that they've had is that as you start to chase down the people who worked on the film and you sort of track down the companies that provided the various parts, is that you soon begin to realize that the real prop looks nothing like it does on the screen. Right. Right. And so you're trying to reproduce something that really doesn't exist except in your own imagination. Uh, and it's a fascinating sort of reality to suddenly realize that you can make a, a, your own replica of the prop that was used on Star Wars and it would look like crap if you showed it to anybody. Right. So you end up with other people, all these people who are ma manufacturing their own replicas, they all have in their own head their own perception of how it should look based on what they saw in the movies. And so I guess the issue is that when Peter Jackson introduces this new technology, he may, no, nobody may be aware of this, but be removing that psychological process, that our imagination does fill in things when you leave little tiny holes for it. Right. And if you, you don't allow for that, if your, your image is too crisp or too clear, then you may be disturbing the very process by which we create our own version of the movie in our heads. Right. Well, I'm, I'll be interested to see how this how this plays out. Um, you know, listen. I, it, there's been talk that the the process is making people physically ill. That didn't happen to me. Uh, there's you know, but people say like when when Avatar came out, it was the longest 3D movie to date, and people are like, oh my god, it'll, you can't. It's too much. You can't see that. It's you know, no, none, there's none of that here. Uh, it is a lot. It's a lot, and it looks it, it it looks remarkably different. And so, you know, my my point is, it doesn't look like a movie that sort of that we traditionally you know think of as a movie. And it it, it for me, it took me out of the story mm -hmm. because so many things that I take for granted, like camera movement and that sort of thing, is now accentuated by the technology. And I think that plays against the the magic feeling that i should have when i sit in a theater and watch it i mean i saw it on a screen that was the size of a football field and a half or something i mean i saw it on this giant screen it should have been immersive and blown my mind and it didn't because i i kept thinking oh look that was a clunky camera move because it's so like it, it it's not seamless it, it it is uh it's like you know it it, it gives you too close a look at things uh, that maybe you don't need to see that closely. Well, even in the world of, of documentary, like nature documentaries, uh, you have no idea how much it, it, faking is the wrong word, 
but right. just sort of trying to fill in the gaps for the right. viewer that actually occurred. So when you see a clo close up, especially a time lapse or a slow motion of, say, a dragonfly going through the air, um, obviously those cameras don't record sound. Right. So when you see it on television and that yeah, yeah. you're hearing as it goes by, that's been added. That's actually faked. Or uh, sometimes it's impossible to get the cameras in to actually follow an event that happens in the wild right from the very beginning. So they kind of cheat in that they record multiple stories and take a little bit. So that that um, that cheetah that's going after that that the antelope. Right. The, the first time you see that, that's a different cheetah chasing a different right, yeah, 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 from yeah, the yeah. cut where the antelope goes down. So even in the world of, of documentary work where there would be a, um, as much of a motive to give something that's as, as representative and realistic to what's in front of the lens as possible, there's a lot of, of sort of fibbing and, and sort of tweaking that goes on. So I, I think that you have to have that within storytelling, anything that's kind of fictional, and especially something that's, that's meant to be nostalgic. You know, this is going back to an earlier time even though it's a fantasy world, it's meant to be our history that we're looking at when it comes to uh, Middle Earth, you know? Yeah, listen, I, I, you know, I, I hope people like it. I think fans will like it. Uh, it but, but I'll be interested to hear because it is a startlingly different experience. I can imagine. going to see uh, anything else. Is there uh, a lot of singing? Uh, there is some singing. There okay. are some. Yeah, there are there are dwarf songs and things. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. <laughs> that that was one of the things that most people react to when they read the books. They're very long books. They the the Lord, the, fellow, the Lord of the Rings, but partly because there's lots of songs right. that are in there, and a lot of that just has to come with the the, the time of which Tolkien lived, where people yeah. gather in pubs and and sing. You know. Sorry. So I know there was a lot of concern that that was how they were going to pad out. Suddenly, it's the Hobbit, the musical. Right. You know. With, <laughs> <laughs> and Anne Hathaway and Hugh Jackman are starring in it uh, because uh, they didn't get enough from Les Mis. Uh, speaking of music, I just wanted to wrap uh, on one thing. The the uh, concert uh, to raise money for uh, Hurricane Sandy was last night. Mm -hmm. And uh, I saw little bits and pieces. Of it. I went to the movies last night, so I missed a lot of it. Uh, and I didn't see uh, Paul McCartney fronting Nirvana until today. And, I mean, if there is a stranger mix, I don't know yeah. really what it is. Although, apparently, uh, years ago, Paul McCartney said that he really admired Nirvana. Uh, although, I find that hard to believe, because only because I've read recently where he kind of said, well, I don't really know who they are. Anyway, but the, someone has said that he's, you know, he's, he was a big thing. And Cobain was a big Lennon and McCartney uh, fan, a Beatles fan, so I can get that. But the thing, uh, we'll, we'll post the video for it uh, on the website. Um, if we're able to, I don't know if it will let us because it will, well, we'll try. Uh, but we'll uh, find a way. <laughs> yeah, well, you'll find a way uh, because you have to see Dave Grohl playing drums on this. He doesn't play drums very often anymore because of the Foo Fighters, he's a guitar player and singer. Uh, and as a as a former drummer, uh, um, I loved one of the comments on the YouTube page here, and uh, I'll see if I can. It essentially, just says, "Wow, Dave Grohl just made those drums his bitch." And it's really something to see this guy back behind a drum kit. It's awesome. More awesome, I thought, than seeing Paul McCartney standing in front. But check out uh, Dave Grohl in the video. Very, very cool. All right, well, you can uh, connect with us at heyallyouzombies.com. Uh, if you have any suggestions for things that we should talk about or you want to react, uh, you, know, you can find us all there. And all the episodes are listed at heyallyouzombies.com. Just go up to the upper left. This is Watch Episodes. All of them. We're up to episode 30 now, so there's quite a few to kind of go through. And so um, on behalf of Richard over there. See you later. And myself and, um, yeah. and, and Mr. Charles here. Yes. Uh, let's see if he's always falling asleep on me. Wiggy. You want to say goodbye? <laughs> that is so weird. Yes. <laughs>